Hey everybody, welcome back to the Faith Over Fear podcast. I appreciate you tuning in and I really appreciate all the support that I've received and uh, just appreciate you listening. Today we're going to be talking about spiritual fitness. A world-class runner was invited to compete in a road race in Connecticut. On the morning of the race, she drove from New York City following the directions, or so she thought, given to her over the telephone. She got lost, stopped at a gas station, and asked for help. She knew that the race started somewhere in a parking lot of a shopping mall. The station attendant also knew of such a race scheduled just up the road, and he directed her there. When she arrived, she was relieved to see in the parking lot a modest number of runners preparing to compete. Not as many as she'd anticipated, an easier race than she'd been led to expect. So she hurried to the registration desk, announced herself, and was surprised by the race officials' excitement at having so renowned of an athlete show up for their race. No, they had no record of her entry, but if she'd hurry and put on the number, she could make it just before the gun went off. She ran, and naturally, she won easily, some four minutes ahead of the first male runner in second place. Only after the race, when there was no envelope containing her prize and performance money, did she confirm that the event she'd run was not the race to which she'd been invited. That race was being held several miles farther up the road in another town. She'd gone to the wrong starting line, ran the wrong course, and missed her chance to win the prize. Well, are we running the race that God has marked out for us? Today we're going to look at the passage of Scripture that Paul wrote in his letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where he compares our Christian walk to a runner running in a race. Running in a race not only requires great amounts of determination, but it requires its participants to be prepared and physically fit. If only we put as much time and effort into our spiritual fitness as we do our physical fitness. In fact, have you ever noticed how our culture is obsessed with getting in shape physically? At the end of every December, as a new year approaches, people begin gearing up for their New Year's resolutions. According to Statista, over 50% of the people that were polled said that they wanted to improve their physical fitness in some way by eating healthier, by being more active, or losing weight. The fitness and health industry in the United States is worth billions of dollars. At any given time, over 60 million Americans hold gym memberships. 45 million consider themselves to be on a diet of some sort. While our physical fitness is certainly something to take seriously, people are not nearly concerned enough about their spiritual fitness. Hours upon hours are spent at the gym, but for most, not nearly enough time is spent reading scripture or exercising our faith. Our efforts toward physical fitness may lengthen our lives by a couple of years, but in the end, unfortunately, everyone is, every one of us are going to end up six foot under. Staying in shape spiritually not only improves our lives here on the earth, but it ultimately will save us from death too. The psalmist of Psalm 73 verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Physical fitness requires a mindfulness of your habits. Statistics show that if you cut out a can of pop every day, that you'd be able to shed over 13 pounds in the course of a year. Exercising helps to keep you strong and in shape. While spiritual fitness requires you to stay active as well. While the benefits are not nearly 
as advertised as much as diet and workout plans. But when you add in daily doses of prayer and stay active in reading the Bible, then you'll shed a lot of worry, fear, and doubt, and you'll grow in your spiritual strength and in love. Paul writes, Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. I like the story of an elderly, retired couple that decided they should start to walk four miles every day to stay in shape. So they decided they were going to walk a mile in one direction out on a lonely country road that their house was on and back. The next morning, as they began walking, the sun was beating down on them and it was a hot, hot day. They finally made it to the two-mile mark on their first venture after what seemed like forever. And as they started back, the man asked his wife, You think you can make it back all right, honey? Or, or are you too tired? How are you feeling? And she said, Oh, no, I'm, I'm not tired. I can make it just fine. And he said, Good, I'll wait here. You can go get the car and come back to get me. Well, getting in shape doesn't come easy, does it? In the same way that physical fitness requires a great deal of perseverance, so does spiritual fitness. In the Old Testament, there are a few mentioned of sports or games. In the New Testament, they are used to provide great illustrations for us to important teachings. In the ancient Olympic, Olympic Games of Paul's time, athletes would compete in such events such as boxing, chariot racing, or foot racing. Becoming an elite athlete took strict training and dedication. The Olympic athletes of today's time plan out their training schedule, schedules years in advance to work out towards certain goals. On an average day, if an Olympic athlete isn't sleeping or eating, typically they'll be found training. In a news report, Michael Phelps said that he practices every day in the pool for three to six hours and does additional separate exercises on land four or five days per week. A study before the 2012 London Olympic Games showed that on average, each athlete had put in, on average, over 10,000 hours of training and practice to become elite in their sport. On average, Olympic track runners run a total distance of well over 100 miles every single week. Well, that's a lot of work. He writes, Paul writes, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Now, the scene that Paul sets here for us is of an arena where the racers would run with a sea of spectators surrounding them. Our track, or our earthly course, is the race that we run as Christians marked out before us. In the same way that runners strictly train to get their bodies in shape for a race, we train to get our hearts and our minds in shape. Now, if you know me, you might look at me and think, this guy doesn't look like somebody who's ever run a long-distance race. Well, you'd be right. But even if we don't have uh, the first-hand experience necessarily of being a runner or a long-distance runner, the picture painted here is pretty easiest for all of us to understand if you've ever ran before at all. So this, today we're going to look at four important things that we have to do to keep ourselves active in this spiritual race. Number one, we need an ultimate spiritual diet. An ultimate spiritual diet. Back in 2008, leading up to the Summer Beijing Olympics, Michael Phelps made news headlines buzz with his diet plan. It was 12,000 calories per day. 
His breakfast included three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, fried onions, and mayonnaise, two cups of coffee, a five-egg omelet, one bowl of grain, three slices of French toast, three chocolate chip pancakes. For lunch, he would down a pound of pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches, and energy drinks. And when dinner time rolled around, he would eat another round of pasta, more energy drinks, and an entire pizza. I think if we were to eat like that, we'd all be heading out to buy bigger clothes. But it must have worked out for him because he went on to dominate the competition that year. Well, we need a nutrient-rich plan for our nourishment in our lives, too. We are supplied with proper sustenance in two ways. The first is obtained by partaking of the Lord's Supper each and every week. By doing so on a weekly basis, we're reminded of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. Uh, it's written in the book of John, uh, chapter 6. When Jesus wanted to feed 5,000 people with five small loaves of bread, his disciples questioned how it was even possible. But the verse says that Jesus distributed, distributed it to the people and as much as they wanted. And we're told that they gathered what was left over and filled 12 baskets with it. A while later, when questioned further about it, he declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. He continues on to say, Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So in the same way, when we partake of the cup, representing his blood, our spiritual thirst is quenched. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Just a couple of chapters earlier, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, he told her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Worldly food and bread leaves us hungry once again, but Christ, the bread of life, satisfies our deepest spiritual hunger. The second way is that we supply our spiritual needs is by having a steady intake of Scripture. With cell phones and computers in our faces all day long, we take in a heavy intake of junk food. It's a constant stream of bad news, negativity, news feeds filled with useless information. Every now and then I look at my screen time on my phone and it's always a little bit shocking, realizing just how much time is spent on social media or other apps. Now that can't be right, but it is. It's a lot of time. Studies have shown correlations between the more hours spent in front of a screen per day, the less satisfied that you become. Don't get me wrong now, I do appreciate the great upsides that our phones have brought with instant messaging and everything else. But what a different world it would be if we all just took a fraction of the time that we spend on our phones and spent it on getting to know the Bible. When we limit our intake of spiritual junk food and replace it with spiritual health food, it builds us up to live a healthy Christian lifestyle. You'll never regret time spent reading God's Word. A man was walking in the desert one day when a voice said to him, Pick up some of these pebbles and put them in your pocket, and tomorrow you'll be both sorry and glad. So the man obeyed. He stooped down and he picked up a handful of pebbles and he put them into his pocket. The next morning he reached into his pocket 
and he found shining diamonds and emeralds and rubies, and he was glad and sorry. He was glad he had taken some, yet sorry that he hadn't taken more. And so it is with God's word. If you've ever dieted before, you know how hard the first few days are. You crave the sweets. If it tastes good, you probably can't have it. But after you get through those first few days, you don't crave the junk like you did before because it makes you feel bad. It brings you down. The healthier you feel, the happier you feel. And it's the same way for our spiritual health. Bible reading plans are a great way to give structure to the way we read daily. And before you know it, we don't read the words because we feel like we're obligated to, but we read them because God's Word excites us. It stirs up passion and purpose in our lives. Hebrews 4.12 says that God's Word is alive and active. Maybe uh, on a box before you've seen the nutrition facts label. Well, they also have one for the Bible. If you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to look it up. Uh, The amount per serving is one loving God. With the proper serving size, your daily value is 100% joy, 100% peace, and 100% hope. When you involve yourself in God's Word, the differences it makes are life-changing. His Word prepares us for the race we're built to run. Well, even though reading the Bible is of great value and importance, it's still only the first step. To see the results, we have to take it another step farther. Paul wrote to Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Which leads us into number two. We have an ultimatum. An ultimatum. We have to take action and make the intentional choice to run in God's race. If a person looks for ways to start planning to become healthy, they can read all of the diet and weight loss books in the world. If we want to become a world-class runner, we can read workout plans and statistics. We could read all the material that there is to read, but if we don't take action, we're not going to see results. The Bible prepares us for the race, but to fully develop our spiritual fitness, we have to take action. James 1 verse 22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Did you look into the mirror in your bathroom or on the wall this morning when you were getting ready? You probably looked into the mirror to see how your outfit looked or maybe your hair needed a little bit of fixing and adjusting. You looked, you said, wow, I need to comb my hair. But then you turn around and walk away forgetting about it. No, you didn't do that, did you? You grabbed a comb and you fixed what needed to be fixed, walking away confident. Well, James uses this illustration to go on and explain that it's the same with God's Word. He says, Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do it, do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Maybe this man looked in the mirror and and noticed that he needed to shave a few days of stubble, but in a hurry... He rushed out the door, still looking as if he'd just rolled out of bed. He looked into the mirror. The mirror showed him the problem that needed to be fixed, but he didn't take action. He didn't do anything to fix it. Well, the Word of God does the same for us. It shows us the things we need to fix. It shows us the things we should do. As Hebrews 4 verse 12 goes on to say, 
The word of God penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. But we have to take the next step into following through with it. If we read the Bible and walk away without taking action or changing anything, then it was of no use. In verse 25, James says that whoever looks intently into the perfect law and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Romans 2 verse 13 says, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law that will be declared righteous. To truly run our race for God, then God's word has to be truly taken to heart and reflected in. The words aren't just to be glanced over, but to make an impact upon our hearts. It has to be put into action to see results. God has set the race out before us. We have to take action and make the intentional decision to run in it. Number three, we need to be ultimately light. Ultimately light. Paul says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Runners dress for the occasion with clothing that lets them move freely but yet in a way not to be tripped up or weighed down by unnecessary baggage. I've never seen a runner wearing long robes or on the other end of the spectrum, they don't wear tight jeans that would hinder them. Well, Paul instructs us that in the same way to let go of anything that hinders you from running freely. Hindrances might come in different forms for all of us, whether it be in fear or doubt, strangling our thoughts, or struggling to put our priorities in the right order. In Luke 21, verse 34, Jesus said to be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with the anxieties of life. Fears and worries only make our race that much harder to run. Paul also says to throw off any sin that entangles you. When I hear that verse, it makes me think of a pair of shoes with the strings untied. You ever had your shoestring untied? It'll put you on the ground before you know what hits you, won't it? This verse means to put off the temptations of sins that will bring us down, running forward in the race, but also the mistakes we've made need to be put behind us. Author Paul Thigpen tells a story about his father as a little boy who would go on long walks on the beach with his favorite aunt. On one of those walks on a warm summer evening, he'd gathered such a great armload of stones from the shore that he tired himself out. So he asked her to carry him the rest of the way home. And she said, I'll gladly carry you, but I won't carry all those heavy rocks. You'll have to get rid of him first. Well, his legs were aching, but he was reluctant to part with his newfound treasures. So he thought of a solution to his dilemma. I know, he said with a grin. I'll just put them in my pockets. Then you won't have to carry them. Well, we can't hide the baggage, can we? We're either going to hang on to it or let it go and focus on the road ahead of us. Whatever sins our past hold, we can let go of because of God's grace. Hanging on to them will only entangle us, slowing us down and stopping us short of the goal we're pressing towards. Proverbs 4 verse 25 reads, Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. It's difficult to run straight forward when we're looking behind us. In Philippians 3, verse 13, Paul writes, Although I haven't yet arrived at my goal, one thing I do, 
forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If there might be anything that could reach out of out a grip and distract our focus away from the race, then we should throw it off. When we run in God's race, he needs us to completely do away with that. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Number four, we need to put in an ultimate effort. Ultimate effort. We are instructed to run with perseverance. The KJV uses the word patience. Run the race with patience. Run in a way is to win the prize, says 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24. We're not running a short sprint, but however a marathon. And to do so, being patient and persevering is the only way to accomplish our goal. A short story that I'd like to read was written out about a young boy running in a race. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race, or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. Their fathers watched them from off the side, each cheering for his son, and each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. The whistle blew and off they went, young hearts and hopes of fire. To win, to be the hero there, was each boy's desire. One boy in particular, his dad was in the crowd, was running near the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as he speeded down the field across a shallow dip, the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his hands flew out to brace. Amid the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. So down he fell, and with him hope, he couldn't win it now. Embarrassed, sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, Get up and win that race. He quickly rose, no damage done, behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself, to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs, he slipped and fell again. He wished that he had quit before with one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now, I shouldn't try to race. But in the laughing crowd he searched and found his father's face, that steady look that said again, get up and win that race. So he jumped up to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm going to gain those yards, he thought, I've got to run real fast. Exceeding everything he had, he regained eight or 10, but trying so hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Defeat. He lay there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? The will to rise had disappeared. All hope had fled away. So far behind, so error-prone, closer all the way. I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not met for failure here. Get up and win that race. With borrowed will, get up, it said. You haven't lost it all. For winning is not more than this, to rise each time you fall. So he rose to run once more, 
and with a new commit, he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling, three times he rose again, too far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the end. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed, first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line, last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. Running takes perseverance. We're going to lose our breath. We're going to fall on our faces from time to time. There's going to be hurdles. There's going to be distractions. The Greek word for the race is agonis. It might sound a little familiar to us because that's where we get the word agony. Some of us would probably say that running a race is an agonizing experience. It takes passion. It takes endurance. It takes an extreme amount of effort and concentration. But when you persevere and you cross the finish line, it only makes a victory that much sweeter. Proverbs 24 verse 16 says, For though a righteous man falls, he rises again. After a terrible race for John Aquari in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, where he finished 75th place out of 75 runners, a reporter asked him, Why didn't you quit when you were hurt and bruised and bloody and discouraged? Why didn't you quit? He replied, My country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Well, God didn't send you or me to give up on him. He didn't send his one and only son to come down, live a spotless life, only to give his life, to start something. John records Jesus' last words on the cross. It is finished. When hard times come, dropping out is the worst thing we could think of doing. We persevere with patience. As we close, Paul sums up all of these things in his letter to the Hebrews, and he instructs us to do one last thing in the midst of running our race. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So what's the key to not growing weary or losing heart? We have to keep our eyes on the prize, the ultimate prize. In the ancient Greek games mentioned earlier, the person who competed and came out in first place would receive a crown of celery leaves as their prize. A crown of celery leaves that would wither away in just a matter of a few short days. All of the work and training, the endurance and patience that they put in only achieved a wreath placed upon their head. 
Well, isn't our crown so much more glorious than that? 1 Corinthians 9 verse 25 says, They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. James 1 verse 12 says that those who persevere will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The best part is we have a great role model to look up to who's ran the race before us in Jesus, the pioneer of faith. He faced the obstacles and knows what the opposition feels like, yet he persevered and will one day give us our prize. Even though we continue to put our best effort into winning the prize, we still don't deserve it. It's because of Jesus that we are rewarded. Each one of our races might look a little bit different. We each have different hindrances that we need to throw off. Certain obstacles might look different for each one of us. And we may be at different spots in the race. Maybe we've just started the race. Maybe we're feeling tired or achy. Perhaps we just found a second wind. Regardless, we're in this race together. We're not racing against each other. We're just helping to get as many people across that finish line with Jesus as possible. We pick each other up in the hard times, and we're all running for the same goal. Jesus is the finish line that we keep our eyes on and we put our hope in. Spiritual fitness is the best way to keep our heart healthy, and the race yields such a great reward. When we reach that finish line, won't it be such a magnificent day when we hear those words as we receive our prize? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Maybe you're just building up the courage to run this race. If you need to respond in any way, then I'd encourage you to come forward and take your spot in the ultimate race. Confessing your sins, being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and having your sins washed away. Thank you for listening today. I, uh, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you.